Good evening, everyone. I want to begin by telling you thank you. Thank you for sharing the sacred gift, the sacred resource of your time with me tonight. I know that many of you just come here anyway, so I just happen to be here. But I still really honor and appreciate your time. I really feel that each moment is such a gift. Every moment we have is irreplaceable. We get it one moment now, now, now. Each moment we don't get back. Each moment is an investment in something. And so I just feel really blessed and honored and filled with joy to be with you all tonight. And I thank you for allowing me to share the sacred gift of your time. And my commitment and my prayer is that what comes out of my mouth tonight serve you, serves you in some way. And I always tell people, if I say something that really resonates with you and really makes a difference for you, then I'm so happy that I was a mirror for you to see something that was already inside of you. We cannot see in others what we don't already have some aspect of within ourselves. And so if I, if I share something that resonates in a clear way, all I've done really has been a clear mirror for you to see that piece of yourself that might have been hidden or kind of hazed over. And then I also say, if I say something that you don't like, I encourage you just to compost it. <laughs> because I'm not attached to, you know, whether someone likes what I say or not. But I always, I jokingly, but seriously say, compost it, because then it can still serve you, right? If we throw it away, it just creates waste. But if we compost it, it creates food and energy. So... I invite you not to throw it away, but to compost it so that it can still serve you. I had such a funny day today. The universe was laughing at me hysterically that I was going to come here tonight. And so today was the day of one snafu after another. Today was the day of I had to rent a vehicle from today through the weekend. I haven't owned a car since I was 18, so I'm very rarely behind a car, I mean behind a wheel. And so I, I had to rent a car today because I was moving my old office storage unit to a new unit. And, and you know, it was one of those days of everybody cutting me off. <laughs> And people like trying to merge, and I didn't realize they were trying to merge, and then they got upset and started screaming at me and flipping me off. And, and it was also one of those days, like I made one mistake after another. It was just like this snowball of mistakes day. And I, I kept feeling myself getting tense and frustrated and stressed, and then I would start, I'd just bust out laughing because the irony of coming tonight, like having this rush-filled, intense, 50 pounds in a five-pound bag kind of day with lots of people stressed and me feeling myself stressed, it all heading in the direction of coming here. <laughs> so that made me laugh, but it was also such a blessing to know that this was going to be the end of my day. Thank goodness. <laughs> the universe does love me. And, uh, but it was just so, it was so good because it, knowing I was coming here tonight kept me really present to noticing how I was getting charged around things and then breathing and letting it go. And in a way that I, even though it's my commitment to notice and breathe and let go, I might not have been quite so present to it if I hadn't have known I was coming here. So you all helped keep me on a mindfulness track today, whether you knew it or not. So thank you for that. My thinking for tonight is that I, Poetry was mentioned a couple of times, and I have a, a new book that I self-published of poetry, artwork, photos, and sh short stories. And I thought some of the poems kind of speak to what has been really alive and what a lot of people have been asking me lately. So I thought I might start by just sharing a few poems and then go directly from that to you all 
sharing or asking whatever is most present for you, if that feels okay. Uh, because I really do value your time. So instead of just sitting up here talking about things that I hope you're interested in, I'd rather know what's really alive for you and, and speak to that from my own perspective. Um, so that's how I'm thinking we'll start. And uh, if after I'm done reading the poems, if there's nothing coming through, then I'll just keep blah, blah, blahing until stuff starts stirring. Sound good? Great, thank you. So the first poem I'm going to read, I haven't read in a long time because it usually makes me break down sobbing. And, uh, but I've, what I've been getting asked a lot lately is, how do you deal with the grief? How do you deal with the rage? Um, or the anger? The frustration? Because there's, we're so capable as a human species to be doing so much better than we're doing. And being present to the gap between what's possible for us and where we are brings up a lot of charge for us, especially um, if we care. And usually in communities like this one, part of the reason we're here is because we care. And so we have a community process that helps us deal with being in this world and trying to remain present and mindful and loving and compassionate even when it's difficult. So this one... I'm, I've chosen to share because it's about a day that I was in the tree, and it was one of the hardest days I've ever had. And when I talk about my hard days in the tree, a lot of people think it was like, you know, the worst storms in recorded history of California, which was hard. They think it was people trying to kill me. That was difficult, too. They think, oh, it must have been like going without being able to walk and having heat, <laughs> going out to eat with friends, and like the things we take for granted. That must have been the hardest part. That was hard. That wasn't the hardest part. So the hardest part for me actually was having to bear witness to a forest being destroyed. Because to bear witness means you can't stop it. You just have to stand there and hold space for the destruction. And to be on the front lines and bearing witness to something or someone that you love being destroyed is brutal and can be very, very overwhelming, which is why we need spiritual tools and practices, why we need community, why we need something deeper to help us be with the intensity of watching something we love being destroyed. And on this particular day, it had been raining, and it was after they had come up close to the tree and had cut many trees down. And these are trees that are, in that area, were hundreds of years old. The tree I was in is over a 1,000 years old, but most of the trees in that area were second growth, but still very large, very old trees. And they came in and they cut them down. And this day it was raining, and I looked out, and all of the stumps looked like they were bleeding because they're redwoods and they're very, very, very red. And when the rain hit it and glossed over, it literally looked like the trees were bleeding. And it was one of the days where I almost gave up because I didn't know how I could process that much grief and not go crazy. So this poem is called Everything is Bleeding, and it's quite likely that I might cry. <laughs> but I, uh, I'm not ashamed of tears. I figure we spend a lot of money cleansing our outsides, and tears is part of how we cleanse our insides. The name of this poem is called Everything is Bleeding. Majestic redwoods bleed shards onto the ground, leaving behind scarred stumps, a testimony to their wounds. Where forests once ruled, mud and slash and napalm left behind is their only eulogy. 
A man's pride swells as the latest giant smashes to the ground. It's thunderous crash. The applause he will forever hear ringing in his ears. See, it's a conquest to him. His chainsaw victory over the defenseless victims, another trophy to decorate his imaginary wall. Trucks and trains, the hearses in this funeral parade, where ancient elders lay, stripped of their glory, bare for all to witness their shame. They line the highways, red walls of premature death. It seems we've forgotten the meaning of respect. I walk among the ruins, the graveyards of all that's past. Tears fall streaming down my face, my aching so deep it threatens to overwhelm. A scream splits the grieving air. I realize it's my rage I hear. My rage against the men and machines who caused this senseless slaughter. My rage that I can't ever have this forest back. These trees are lost into eternity. I fall to the ground, laying my head to my mother's womb, begging her forgiveness for the death of her children. My aching so deep, it threatens to overwhelm. And that's uh, the eulogy for the Redwoods. And then the reason I chose to share that is because some aspect of that many of us feel in the world today, some level of grief and some level of rage or anger that's a response to feeling the pain. Our, when we get frustrated or when we shut down, it's our response to pain and suffering. So I shared this one just as a, as a way to acknowledge that when we care about something and we watch it be destroyed, we have to deal with the pain that comes with it. And then this next one is, speaks to practices like meditation on how we help process the frustration, the overwhelm, the grief, the rage. And this one's called Finding Clarity. In the depths of my uncertainty and confused chaos lies the cleansing waters of my soul. It is into this I dive, immersing myself in the desire for purity of thought, word, and action. When clarity seems distorted, I learn the lesson of being still. And I feel that's one of the gifts that meditation gives us, is it? We confront the uncomfortable, <laughs> whether it's in our body or in our mind or in our hearts. We confront the uncomfortable, but by steeping into the stillness, we're able to go beneath that which shakes us, that which knocks us off center and balance. And so when we can come into the still space, for me, not only with meditation, but for me, it's really important that I get out into the, the natural world and spend time in silence there because all of the chatter starts seeming pretty insignificant pretty quickly. <laughs> and it allows me to center and find my soul and come back to that place of my heart and spirit guiding my actions versus my frustration and my upset and my overwhelm guiding my actions. And then this is the last one of, um, again, just kind of speaking to the amount of people I've been, who I have, not only now, but since I've done this action, coming up to me and just processing being open in the world today. I was born an extremely sensitive child, and I'm still an extremely sensitive child. <laughs> 
And it's been a really big challenge for me to figure out how to remain open because when I was young, I had no tools, and so I could not process being as sensitive as I am in such a violent world. I did not have the capacity to process it. And so I did many things, including turning to very destructive behavior, including becoming a very major drug addict and alcoholic to self-medicate, to anesthetize and numb myself to the pain. And that didn't work so well. So after a while of doing that, I made a choice that I either needed to take myself completely out of this world or I needed to find a way to be here and to be present and to be alive and to stop being a part of the walking dead, which is what I was doing to myself. And so I, I began a journey of choosing to be here and figuring out how to do that without shutting down and without attacking, because that was the other thing I would do. I would make sure and hurt others before they even got close to having a chance to hurt me. And uh, so I wanted to find a new way of being, and as a result of that, I've been really blessed to find tools that are deep inside to help me remain open. And one of the things I encourage people to do is that it's easy to look at all that's going wrong, and yet what we focus on, we manifest So I encourage people to celebrate the small things, to celebrate the miracles in the moment, um, because we can get so overwhelmed with the big picture. So it's important to recognize all the miracles that happen every day. And I tell people that if, if you choose to wake up in the morning and say, I'm committing to caring today, that's a courageous act. Acknowledge yourself for it and celebrate it. Say, yes, today I'm choosing to care. Uh, because to have our hearts open in the world today is an act of courage. And then when we choose to take action from having our hearts open, acknowledge that as well. Okay, now I'm choosing to have my heart open, I'm choosing to care, and I'm choosing to take action from a place of my care today. And go, yes, I did it again, woo <laughs> And it seems silly, but it actually feeds the well to keep us going. It actually energizes our care. It energizes conscious choices. Because if we don't feed it, the well begins to dissipate, and then we start feeling a little more cynical and frustrated and overwhelmed and upset. So this uh, is a poem just acknowledging keeping our hearts open. And it's called to be, awake, to be Awake. You turned to me and said, How can I live in all that is dying? How can I laugh in the face of cruelty? How can I hold all that is sacred in this time when gold is God and in our God we trust? When everything is being defiled, burnt on the altar of disrespect and disconnect. And looking deep into your soul, I replied, how can we not? How can we not live and laugh and hold for all we are worth? We are the beacons shining. We are the breeze and the trees and the giggling brook. We are the sun and the rain that nourishes the land. We are the hope of a better tomorrow filled with compassion, love, and respect. We are the one to change. We are the transformation, the new beginning. We are. It is in us, and it is now. So those are the three poems I thought I'd share because they just really reflected what I've been hearing a lot. Thank you for listening and allowing me to share those. And now I'd like to open it to you if you're ready, and if not, I can talk a little bit more. Does anyone have a thought or a question? Yes, okay. Okay, great, thank you.
Um, well, it's such a pleasure to see you here. I was teaching Redwood Ecology for quite a few years while you were in the tree, and you were such a hero for all of us. So um, thank you. And one of the questions I have for you um, is sort of regarding being sensitive, um, but also regarding standing up for what you believe in and the effect that that can have on other people. Mm. And so I was recently in a situation where I sort of spoke my mind and stood up for what I believed in. And I was just, I was very passionate, but I was cautious about my words. But inevitably, whenever you stand up for what you believe in, people are going to disagree with you. And I know you experience that a lot, you know, in your situation. I was just sort of wondering how you feel or what, I don't know, what your thoughts are about how to speak your truth, but and knowing that you will inevitably maybe hurt someone else or cause pain in someone else, even if it feels, you know, true for you, how do you find that balance or how do you come to terms with that relationship with, you know, being true to yourself? Mm. That's a great question. Thank you. I don't think I've mastered that one yet. (laughs) I don't know if I've mastered anything with that one. It's part of what I found is that the, First and foremost, I have to do a really deep check-in with myself and see if I'm speaking from love or judgment. Um, Because judgment can get sneaky, especially the more we're committed to being authentic and spiritually aligned and all of that. Actually, the more we practice these tools, the sneakier we get on ourselves. (laughs) So we are human beings, right? So we have mm, flaws. I have lots of them. I make mistakes all the time. So my first thing is I have to try and make sure that I'm, I'm checking in with myself and dropping down really deep to say, am I really speaking from my love or am I speaking from my judgment? And if I'm in a space of judgment, I tell people I just put myself on a timeout and I keep my mouth shut. <laughs> like, I do not go out and do protests in the streets or interviews or talks or anything. If I'm in a space of judgment, I need to put myself on a timeout and get back to whatever I need to do to get back to my love. And part of what that requires actually is um, sometimes I need to get the charge out. So, Because if we're not careful, we think we've done it, and then we talk to someone and our charge comes up, and people can feel it. So if we're already sharing something that's a stretch for someone and they feel an intense energy around it, our animalistic instincts kick in, and it's fight, flight, or freeze. So people when they feel if they're already feeling stretched by what we're offering and then they feel an intensity of energy around it they're going to kick back or they're going to shut down so we have to really be careful and make sure if i have for me if i have charge inside of myself sometimes i have a really wonderful tool that people in the enlightened community think is not that enlightened and that is i have a couple of friends who i call and i just I'm politically incorrect, I am rude, I am crude, I am judgmental, and I'm not saying any of it's true, I just have to get it out. Because the reality is, I have a meanie up here. She is vicious. And I have to make sure that she gets her say in an appropriate place, because she's going to get her say one way or the other. So I want to have her her say in an inappropriate place so she doesn't come out in an inappropriate time. So that's part of what I have to do. Uh, those two things. I have to check in with myself, see if there's judgment and if there's love, see if there's charge, do what I need to do to get the charge out so that when I'm speaking with someone, I am as authentic and present as I can possibly be. 
The other thing that I try and do is really, to the best of my ability, really get myself inside the mind, the experience of the person I'm communicating with. Um, we talk a lot in this country. We don't communicate very often. Communication shares the same root word as community or to commune with. Communication actually only happens in the space of connection. And it doesn't mean that we have to agree in order to have connection. But real communication means some kind of connection has to be there. Otherwise, we're just talking. And oftentimes, if we're just talking about something we really care about and we're not really communicating, we're going to cause more harm than good. I do communicate a lot with people who don't agree with me. The first ring would be my family. <laughs> like, my family are the people who have the God bless America, bomb the crap out of the rest of the world kind of bumper stickers, you know? Like, the, it's like a really interesting karmic family I was born into. And it's a great place for me to practice and fail miserably and practice again <laughs> communication. And then the other thing is, and this is true for communication or anything else in life, I have to be unattached to the results. I have to just share authentically because it's what's so alive and true for me that I need to speak it because to hold my truth back would be to, um, to, to almost disavow myself in some way. Uh, but if I'm attached to the results, if I'm attached to changing somebody's mind, if I'm attached even to making a difference in the world, I am signing up to be miserable. <laughs> That's part of the gift of meditation and yoga and these kind of tools. They give us the opportunity to practice awareness without attachment. Let it go. Like the thoughts come, blah, 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 blah. Notice them, let it go. Uh, because that's where the liberation comes from, the peace, the joy. And the same is true in the world, that I, I will put myself in a prison of my own thoughts and feelings if I stay attached to the results. And then the other great thing is asking people questions and caring about their answers. How many of us have had someone ask us a question to pretend like they care and we know it? <laughs> right? A few of us have. It doesn't feel good. It's like, oh, I wish you wouldn't have even asked. Like, oh. So we have to, yeah, it's like, oh. So we have to, it's a really powerful way to get people connected to us is to ask them a question and actually care about their response. And then the other thing is humor. You know, people try to make fun of me all the time, and I'm like, I lived in a tree for two years and eight days. That's funny. <laughs> and I lived there by myself, and I like to laugh, and I was the only constant material, which means... I am really good at laughing at myself. <laughs> and so I tell people, I'm like, try and out-laugh me. Like, try and make better fun of me than I can make of myself. You're not going to win. I will win making fun of me. So humor also can make a big difference and create a bridge in communication, too. Just taking down any perceived pedestals. Because when we're hearing something that challenges us, in this culture in particular, we're, we're hardwired to think we're being judged. Even if the person who's speaking to us really isn't judging, we're hardwired to hear a different view as judging me. So anything we can do to lessen the listening of judgment, not only our communication of judgment, but to listen, excuse me, to change the listening of judgment can help build a little bit more connection for communication to happen. Thank you.
Anyone else? Up in the balcony. Okay, it's being recorded, but I'll repeat it. I can, I can repeat it. I'll repeat it on the microphone. No, he wants your voice. <laughs> You know, um, you know, like there's 20 different groups on, you know, 25 different groups on saving the elephants or environmental stuff. And, you know, we're all like fragmented and stuff. So how how can we, um, you know, form a coalition maybe mm-hmm. of groups that can be a real can, you know, create a candidate that we want? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? I have thoughts on everything. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, I don't necessarily think that all the groups need to form one coalition. Um, What I do think we need to do is pay attention to how we have gotten so good at defining what we're against that what we are against is beginning to define us, which is any issue we're working on, whether it's deforestation or war or nuclear power or genetic modification of foods or the prison industrial complex or the way our children are being turned into statistics in school versus being seen as authentic, autonomous, unique individuals, whatever issue it is we care about, every issue is a symptom of the disease. And the disease is the disease of disconnect. That's what's underneath every single issue, the disease of disconnect. When we're disconnected from the planet, we can destroy it, not realize we're destroying ourselves. When we're disconnected from another human being, we can make choices that destroy their lives. And we do that in this country all the time. Even the most enlightened of us. We are so disconnected from the thread of the consequences of our choices, of who and what and where was impacted to get what I'm using and who and what and where is going to be impacted when I'm done with it. So even the most conscious among us, myself included, are all, we've all inherited the disease of disconnect. And how that shows up in movement building is that we end up perpetuating our woundedness on one another. And that's part of why I am so passionate about some kind of a a heart and spirit-based practice. That, oh, I had an aha in the tree. I was on the phone, had a solar-powered phone. I was on the phone talking to activists on the ground. We were planning an action, and all of a sudden, anger and animosity started showing up in the conversation. Why would you suggest that idea? That's stupid. That's dumb. (laughs) We don't have the kind of resources for that. Why would you even suggest that? And I was really hurt by that conversation. I was devastated. And when we hung up the phone, I started climbing around in Luna, and I could see from miles in every direction. So I could see both the beautiful, incredibly gorgeous forests that are still protected, and then I could see the clear cuts. That literally looks like a bomb has been dropped because they go in and after they clear cut, they light the clear cut on fire with diesel fuel or napalm. So it is a wiped out zone when they're done. So I could see beauty, devastation, beauty, devastation. And as I was climbing around and crying, I had an epiphany that changed who I am as a person and as an activist. And I had this aha and I thought, how do we think we're ever going to end the clear cutting in the forest if we're so effective at clear cutting one another? And in that moment, I realized that the wounds on the outer landscape are only there because they exist in us first. That every wound, every issue in the outer world is, 
a wound that we have within us, and then we start acting it out on the earth and acting it out on one another. So what I would say about this idea about how we work together, I think it's more of a deeper work than an external work. Everything in the natural world has its own little regions, bioregions, little ecosystems, little family units. They all work together, but they're not a conglomerate. Diversity is part of the beauty and the health in the natural world. So diversity in our movement is good. (laughs) It's not only good, it's necessary. So I don't necessarily think that groups being autonomous is an issue so much as it is is us doing the work so that we're not fighting for resources, so that we're not attacking each other when we have differing views, so that we find a way that even if we're working individually, we're working towards a common goal in a way where we fit together like puzzle pieces versus having to like all kind of become a monoculture in order to work together. Uh, My experience in doing work across the board, environmental, human rights, animal rights, all of them, they, they call them, they, we even say it in our language that we're the animal rights movement, the human rights movement. It's, it's actually all one movement. And it's all the ways we're approaching that same movement. <clears throat> and I have found that the hardest work in all the cross-issue work that I've done is taking time to build trust. Taking time to heal ourselves so that we don't act out our woundedness on one another. And I don't mean this like, I don't actually believe we need to like take time out and just work on ourselves and then we can go back out in the world and work in the world and then take time for ourselves and work on ourselves. Like, I don't think that's necessarily the way it needs to be. I think they can happen at the same time and that they need to happen at the same time. But my experience has showed me that the biggest reason why people don't work better together is because of our inner woundedness that we keep acting out on one another. And it's hard enough to care about the issues in the world when the people you're trying to work with are attacking you. That was hard for me in the tree. I was so naive. I was like, why are we fighting? I thought we were supposed to be friends. And, you know, like, I was like, oh, I get it. And then I had the aha that day. I was like, oh. And that's when I realized I needed to be fierce about working on my internal landscape. And I still am to this day, really checking myself, really working on continuously digging with excitement. Let me see what crap is in there (laughs) and be excited about it versus hiding from it and be like, okay, there's a lesson, there's a truth here, there's a power here. And I actually think that that's what we need to be doing more of. And beautifully, luckily, we're seeing more of it happening. We're seeing more and more spiritual communities forming around taking action in the world. And we're seeing more people who've been involved in actions in the world starting to develop a spiritual practice. And I think that's what's going to bring us together. Thank you. And just so you know, you can actually ask me anything. <clears throat> People don't ever believe me. But see, here's the thing. I don't get offended because being offended is a personal choice, and I just choose not to make that choice because I've got lots better things to do with my time. Here's a hand up here. And the only other thing I tell people is you can ask me whatever you want. I just reserve the right to answer however I want. I figure it's only fair. <laughs> Hi, Julia. Hi. Um, my name's Tori. Hi, Tori. Um, can you talk a little bit more about your addictions and how you dealt with it? Sure. My addictions and how I dealt with it. Part of what happened for me was I was really deep in addiction. Most of the people I hung out with then are dead. That's how deep I was in. Four people in one night died. Um, A a friend of mine blew his own head off because he got in too deep on drugs. His brother, his only other sibling, a week later, getting high on cocaine and drinking at a party to numb himself about his brother's death, overdosed and died. His parents lost both of their children in one week. 
Like, I was in it intense. And because that seems to be my karma this lifetime, I don't do anything small or halfway. <laughs> Whether it's drugs or sitting in a tree or whatever it is I'm doing, I tend to just go all out. And uh, so part of what happened for me was I just had it in my face so much that I, it, it finally snapped me awake. And I was like, I, that's what made me go, I've got to choose. I can't be in this in-between world anymore. And it helped me wake up that I was, I was doing this thing. I was like taking all these drugs and things to numb myself. And then I was doing very risky behavior so that I could feel. Because my soul longed to be alive. I just didn't have the tools for how to be alive and open in the world I was in. So that sent me on a journey. But I, I pretty much cleaned up cold turkey. And... Um, Part of what's been super important for me is eating healthy food, exercise, yoga, meditation, all the things that keep the vessel of me healthy. And I still deal with addiction. Um, I have a tendency on very rare occasions to head towards alcohol. I, in, I'm Italian. I enjoy a glass of red wine with dinner. I just do. Like, <laughs> I'm an addict who can actually occasionally have a glass of wine with a meal and be fine but I can't keep alcohol in my house because I will drink it all. I also can't keep sweets in my house. I have a thing with sweet foods, too. Like, if I have a thing of cookies, I will eat all of them. I can't just eat one, so I can't keep them in the house either. I cannot have a drink if I'm sad or depressed or upset about anything because I won't just have one. And on occasion, I have slipped off the wagon and woken up a week later and realized I drank myself to sleep every night. And part of what helps get me back on track is not judging myself for it. Um, having, because if I judge myself for it, I'm not going to learn anything from it. Judgment can only kill. That's all it can do. It cannot bring life to anything. So if I'm judging myself, I'm just going to kill off any opportunity for growth or learning. So if I'm heading back towards drinking, there's a reason. And if I judge myself for it, I'm not going to get to the root of why I did it. And in the root is some, a lesson for me, is a growth, is a learning opportunity. So I, don't, I do my best not to judge myself. I talk about it openly. I'm like, yep, this is me, here I am. Uh, and I glean from it the lessons that I can and get back to my commitments. But I do tend to notice that when I'm draining my vessel of my body, mind, heart, and spirit, I'm more and more likely to head in the direction of filling the void with something else. And when I feel myself craving something that's bad for me, I, it's usually, most of the time now, it's a mindfulness bell to check in and go, where am I out of balance? Where am I out of health? Because that's why I'm leaning in that direction. Yeah. Sure, thank you. Hi. I'm Martin. Um, this goes back a little bit to what you were talking about earlier, and I, I think you started out by saying something along the lines of where we put our energy is what we create for ourselves. And um, like I'm sure many people in this world, I've spent my career fighting against bad things. Right. Um, and, um, you know, for 20 years I've been trying to stop harm to the planet and to people and but in fight fighting to do that and i'm starting to notice how toxic that is mm -hmm. to be fighting even if you're fighting for good things mm -hmm. um so can you talk about like 
what do we do with that? How, how do we, because we ha- someone has to be yes. fighting those fights. Um, how do we keep it from destroying us? Mm. Thank you. And thank you for the work you've done. Yeah. Our world is a better place because of people like you, so thank you. Mm. Even the things that you fought for and lost, the fact that you were a stand sends a message out into the universe of what you're committed to, and that makes a difference. So thank you very, very much. Mm-hmm. Um, it is important, it's so important that we take a stand against destruction, against violence. And at the same time, we also have to equally invest energy in standing what we're for. And I think that's part of what becomes imbalanced in the work, is we're fighting for a sustainable planet and the people who are doing it are completely unsustainable. <laughs> They're working all day and all night. They, they don't have health care. Their teeth are falling out of their heads or they're stressed out all the time and popping antacids. Like the amount of unhealth and dis-ease in the movement of people working for a healthy planet and a healthy world is kind of staggering actually. <laughs> And that's because so much of the attention and focus is on against, against, against. So even though it is absolutely vital that we take a stand against the destruction and the violence, it is also equally important that we invest energy in what we're for. So it's important that communities like this happen, that we find communities where we get together and have potlucks or where we go out dancing or things that really nourish us. Uh, Whatever practice we can do that nourishes us and really... I do, one of the things I do now is life coaching with people, and one of the things I make people do is put self-care in ink, unerasable ink in the calendar. And I don't care what emergency comes up. Um, because the issues we're dealing with is like the emergency room, and we're always in the emergency room. But then the result is we're not investing in holistic health care. And so I... I I talk to people like they say, you know, do you call yourself an activist? And I usually tell people, well, if I have to call myself something, I think I call myself a holistic healthcare practitioner. Because that's really what I'm committed to, is like health from the inside out, from the ground up. And there are times when I'm in the emergency room, but I am constantly doing all the work I can possibly do to be working on holistic healthcare at the same time, both internally and externally. And I feel like that's kind of the emerging conversation beginning to happen in the movement of people who are very active in the world right now is they're beginning to take a step back because they've burnt out and exhausted themselves and hit brick walls until they can't function anymore. And so it's beginning to create this inquiry of how can we be a fierce stand in fierce times? You know, we are facing quite quite probably, possibly the largest threat the human species has ever faced. We are about to wipe ourselves off the planet. We are facing the question of, do we get to be here or not? And we're, not only is that the question, we're looking at who and what is being absolutely devastated and destroyed as we're heading towards the answer to that question. And it's intense time. So it is really calling for all of us to really be much more bold and bigger than we've ever known ourselves to be. But how can we do that without burning the candle at both ends? How can we do that where we are modeling the world we want to live in, not just fighting for it and demanding that others do it? And I don't necessarily have all the answers, (laughs) but I do know that for me, it's been a journey of 
being way too extreme, and then I kind of went into hiding for a little bit. I was averaging 250 events a year for seven years. <laughs> I was so out of balance. <laughs> so then I put myself on sabbatical and did no public events for a year. I just kind of went into hiding and whimpered for a while. <laughs> like, I don't know what I'm going to do now. And I'm starting to reemerge now and finding my balance. It's like I moved my home base to a place where I'm healthy. I was, I am not, it's not healthy for me in the Bay Area. I have to use an inhaler to breathe here. All of my injuries in my body hurt. It's not healthy for me here. And I kept feeling like if I moved to where I was healthy, I wouldn't be able to do as much for the planet, and so I just needed to tough it up and bear it. And I realized that wasn't in integrity, that I needed to be somewhere where my health and wellness well fills up so that when I do the work in the world, I'm coming from a healthy place versus a depleted place. And we can look to a garden to see the results of that behavior. If you have depleted soil, you can grow things, but the nutrition content of the food is not going to be the same. The color and the vibrancy and the amount of the flowers is not going to be the same. When you put some intention and attention and good compost and nurturing soil, you get some good foods and good flowers. So if it's true in the other-than-human world, it has to be true here too. So how can we continue to equally attend to the inner garden and the inner landscape, so that when we do the work in the world, we're bringing our best self versus our depleted self. And I think ultimately, at the end of the day, that what that means for each of us is different because we're diverse people. Thank you. Back here. Um, I've been a war tax resistor for a long time and was very moved by your incredible action, however many years ago that was. And, but one of my problems with war tax resistance is the resistance and that it is sometimes feeling like Sisyphus. And just wondering if you've had any insights or ideas in terms of how to make it I want to say a more positive movement. Hmm. Um, Just leave it at that. Sure. And more inviting to other people. Right, right. So what she's talking about, for those of you who don't know, a much bigger action than even living in a tree for two years. Many years ago, I lost track as well. I sued three corporations and settled out of court. And I told them when I was suing them that I was giving 100% of the proceeds away, So they and I had pro bono lawyers, so they better do well and settle fairly, or I would go to court because I had nothing to lose. But about six months before we settled, I found out that the IRS still considered it personal income and that they were taxing the amount of the settlement, both the monetary and non-monetary amount of the settlement. And even with the best tax lawyers and everyone involved, they were only able to bring my liability of that settlement down to $175,000. And this was right when we were beating the battle drums to head into Iraq. <clears throat> and I went to Louisiana, and I was marching in the street with like maybe a 1,000 people. We had people on Harley-Davidson's revving and running them right up next to us as loud as they could to drown us out. We had young people throwing beer bottles and bricks at us, and we had police standing by watching it all happen. Then I went from there and I came to the Bay Area and was in San Francisco helping shut down the financial district, was a part of the team who helped shut down the, fin- the federal building. It was like, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of people. I don't even know how many of us were out there that day. The estimates went all over the place. Who knows? There was a lot of us out there. And as I was out there and I was thinking about the settlement, I was like, okay, it's so important that we're out here speaking out, saying this is not what we want to see happen. And at the same time, we're all going to go back to our lives and feed this very same machine we're protesting and think we're going to stop it. Because we feed it with the money we give it. So here we are going to give it our money and then tell it to stop. (laughs) And then get upset when it doesn't stop. And I knew in my heart that I could not pay that $175,000 at that time. So I went and did the research I needed to do of the incredible movement of war tax resistance and read online everything I could read, talked to as many people as I could talk to to understand what the possible consequences and implications would be, and then did what I needed to do to make other people in my life safe because they weren't actually, most of the people in my life were not supportive of that choice. And so I did what I could to make sure that one of the things the IRS does to try and scare individuals who take the stand is to go after the people who are close to them, to just try and threaten and scare and get people to give up. So I got off of all the boards of nonprofits that I was on, got off of payroll, did everything I needed to do to create a a buffer zone between my choice and everyone else. And then I filed my taxes and said, this is, you say, I owe you $175,000, but I can't pay it. And I told them I'm not against paying taxes because I, I love what we do as a collective. I know that as individuals, the choices we make has a huge impact, but when we join our individual efforts together, it's even bigger. And the problem is right now our taxes are going to war on the planet and war on people. So our collective money is going towards harm and destruction and violence. And I can't, in good conscience, invest in that. So I'm going to redirect my taxes and pay my taxes where they belong because you refuse to do so. And when you choose to start putting our taxes where they belong, I'll be very, very, very excited and happy to join in that collective effort again. and um, now with penalties and fees and interest, I owe over $400,000. I cannot own anything. They will take it. I cannot have any long-term contracts in my name, or they will take it. It's had me get very, very creative, and uh, and my war tax resistance was the largest single war tax resistance in history, so there's no precedent. (laughs) So it's been like a big experiment to see what was going to happen, and so that's what she's referencing and it is something I'm very proud of because it's been an, it's an everyday action. I've had to become very creative at how I sustain myself, how I just earn, because we live in an economic system, how I can earn enough to, to take care of my needs and at the same time not invest in things I don't believe in. And as far as the movement in general goes, I think that, um, you know, at least for myself, I'm, I always look to myself. Before I talk about how anything else can shift, I just look to myself and say, am I in alignment with what it is I want to see? So with my war tax resistance, I've really talked about it as not what I'm against, but what I'm for. So I I took my money away from what I'm against, but I invested it in all the things that I'm for. And so I love talking about that. You know, I, I helped fund the beginning of some organizations that are now quite big and thriving grassroots in the Bay Area, that they were just an idea and I knew what was possible. And getting seed grants or emergency funding is extremely difficult as a nonprofit because, you know, the people with the big money, they've got, they want you to fill out a 15-page grant, and then you've got to wait six months. <laughs> and, like, when you're a tiny startup, like, you can't do that. So <clears throat> I helped do that. A majority of the money I invested in Native communities because one of the ways that, unfortunately, racism is still very alive in the United States is in the environmental community because 2% of all environmental funding in the U.S. goes to Native communities. 2%. And 
they were, it was their home. They were the original stewards, and yet so little goes to the original peoples of the places we're trying to protect. So a majority of the money I set aside for that. So emergency funding, seed funding, and in native communities. <clears throat> and really that's how I've just talked about it, is um, not trying to shame anybody into doing it, but just talking about how amazing it's felt to take that stand and have it be an everyday action that I do, day in and day out. And that when bombs were dropping in Iraq, knowing that that money at least didn't go to fund any of those pictures that I saw. I knew I could not fund it and bear the thought of looking at the pictures I knew I was going to see of innocent people blown into bits. And uh, so that's the action, and that's, I don't, you know, I think as a movement, whether we're talking about war tax resistance or anything, can we bring forth what we're for, even as we talk about what we're against? <clears throat> can we... I mean, it happened in the, in the movement, in the anti-war movement. I would go to protests, and I would hear people's voices, and I didn't want to even get close. And I was like, if I'm in alignment with these people, with sharing the same views, and their tone and their voice, they're like screaming and angry and stuff, I was like, oh, oh. And I'm like, if I'm already in alignment with their, with their views, and I'm cringing, then what are we doing with people who might not necessarily agree with us? So um, that's yeah, a long answer to just say, I think that, it's really just incumbent on all of us, not so much, for me anyway, even when I request that others change, I'm doing my best to just model the behavior I want to see in hopes that that inspires others to change versus lecturing. Because lecturing never worked on me. <laughs> and being, humor and creativity too, that's the other piece, you know, like bringing, we have to be creative. To solve the problems we've created, it demands creativity. So let's bring a little creativity and lightness and humor into our, into our work as well. I think that's a good thing. Hmm. Maybe just one more and then our, our time is complete. Or not. Ah. It's gone. Hey, Julian. Hi. Um, I'm not quite sure how to articulate this, but um, so th this morning I saw a, a picture on Facebook which moved me a lot and has been around, and it was about a chief of uh, an ind indigenous tribe in Brazil mm -hmm. getting right. the news that his, you know, um, area that, you know, thousands of people live in is going to be flooded by a large dam. Uh, sorry. So the... Um, this morning I saw a picture in Facebook of a chief of an indigenous tribe in Brazil receiving the news that his area is going to be flooded with, uh, by a large dam. And he was crying, and it, it moved me deeply. Mm -hmm. um, and it circles back to where you started the conversation around how do we deal with grief and rage and frustration. Mm -hmm. uh, and I f um, felt uh, that this immense... Sadness, because you know, for those of us who've been involved in these issues for a long time, the solutions are all out there, and yet the same wrong decisions keep being made. And I feel this sort of immense frustration of of having a vision of a sustainable one planet living that would that is executable now, right. and yet feeling really pretty powerless about making it happen. Mm. 
you know, and I've heard, um, you know, you talking now and, and also at Spirit Rock recently and, you know, I understand the message of inner work and inner, you know, cultivating the inner garden and I think that's all, that speaks very well, particularly to activists who, who often are very external and, and not cultivating that inner work. But in myself, I find a, a, a different place where because I, you know, I was an activist, and then I trained to be a psychotherapist and got into very into spiritual practice. So I went the other way, really inward. But I found that I, I don't. There's a powerless in that, and also a certain a sense, somewhat of disconnect and convenience of living in this kind of Western, happy, rich way. And you know, I want to really help. And and the, I think my main difficulty is around courage. Mm. Yeah, it's really scary. I mean, and that's of course, as you know already, um, and I've told you, but why I admire so much what you did and why that—that's holding a torch. Mm. But uh, you know, so I, I understand all the themes that you're 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 talking about, and yet in myself, <clears throat> s- still want to, to create that power that perhaps the, the lady who was talking above in terms of this, how do we collaborate, how do we build movement. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know, really know if there's a question in here, but <laughs> if you have some words around some of that, um, I, I, I'm still not knowing how to land kind of socially responsible action, mm-hmm. even if it's coming from a spiritually cultivated right. place. Thanks. Thank you. Mm-hmm. I, as most of you probably already know. I am a huge advocate that we start in our daily practice. So um, the reason why there are so many horrific things happening in the world today is due largely in part because of billions of unconscious actions every single day. Um, If we care about the dam in Brazil that's going to flood one million acres of ancestral land and jungle, forest to create energy, the first thing we can do to take action is look at how we're wasting energy in our daily life, because we all do it. And so the first place to stand is where we stand, and that's the first place we can take action. Whatever issue we care about, there's a link. I mean, it's, it's interesting, but the thing that gets me the most rage-filled is all the small ways our unconscious choices in the supposedly conscious community of leaders, because I look at what we're doing, and I'm like, if we're the leaders, we're screwed. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) I get, and it's where all of my spiritual work and everything, and I get triggered, and everything in my thoughts and in my heart, my, when every time I want to give up, it actually very rarely has to do with the people who, who are out causing the big problems. It has to do with the people who call themselves the leaders, who are modeling really, really, unconscious destructive behavior. All the paper and plastic and big cars. I mean, years ago when um, there was, you know, all the no war in Iraq stuff, I was living in Sausalito for a while, and I saw no war in Iraq bumper stickers on the back of so many SUVs. (laughs) And this poem came through, I got a no war on Iraq bumper sticker on the back of my SUV. I want the world to change just as long as it doesn't change me. I do my part by recycling, well, at least part of the time. And when my conscience gets to bothering me, I just focus on somebody else's crime. So 
that was my little like, <laughs> but that, that's why I say first, like we have to start in our daily practice. Gandhi, there's this great story I love about Gandhi where he was standing, sitting in line meeting with the bajillion people who were coming to see him. And a woman comes up to me, and I'm paraphrasing, comes up to him and says, I need you to tell my son to quit eating so many sweets because I'm his mother. <laughs> He's not going to listen to me. You're Gandhi. <laughs> He'll probably listen to you. <laughs> and he takes a moment and he thinks and he nods and he says, come back next week. And she goes, okay. If Gandhi tells you to come back next week, you come back next week. So she leaves. She comes back a week later. She goes up to him and she said, will you please, please tell my son he has not listened to me at all this week. If anything, he's worse than before. Please tell my son to quit eating so much sweets. He said, okay, bring your son to me. He chatted with the son in his Gandhian way. And the son went back to the mom and said, Mom, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be more careful about how many sweets I'm eating. And the mom's like, yes. And she goes up to Gandhi and she says, I hate to ask you this, but, but why wouldn't you tell him last week? And he said, because last week I was eating too much sugar. <laughs> That's such fierce integrity, right? And so he, like... Nobody would have known Gandhi was sneaking snacks on the side. <laughs> but he did. And he knew his power lies in his integrity. The way I talk about it, too, is like if you're building a house and you find that you're over budget, are you going to cut back on the foundation? No. You might change the door handles and the trimming. You're not going to scrimp on the foundation. Because that is the, the whole house is... Beauty and integrity is based on that foundation. So I think first and foremost, part of how we can feel empowered with the big stuff is start getting really, really, really mindful without judgment, but really hyper-mindful about our daily choices and all the way we trash the planet, we waste energy, we waste water, we just all the billion unconscious acts we do. The amount of times I've gone to quote-unquote activist events and meetings and the amount of disposables that are at them, and I'm like really? <laughs> We're still doing this? We're still trashing the planet, telling others they need to stop? Really? So I think that's first where we can start. Number two, the way to move through fear is move already. <laughs> like, I don't, be, I don't say that to be mean, but like fear holds us back and the best way to move through fear is just move. So head towards what we're uncomfortable about. It's part of why I love yoga, because it, it allows me the way to embody moving into the uncomfortable zones versus running from them. Now, my challenge happens to be the other extreme, because I tend to like see a cliff and get a running start and jump. <laughs> and there might be like a ladder. <laughs> so my tendency is I actually have to hold back sometimes. But for people who get held back, the other is true. Just get a running start and jump. Um, you know, there's this beautiful saying, even a butterfly has to trust. You know, like when it comes out of the cocoon, it's been a caterpillar its entire life. It comes out as a butterfly. It doesn't know if it's going to fly. It just has to leap and trust. So part of it, if we, it's also the same for like growing our muscles. You don't grow muscles by walking into a gym and just looking at the equipment. <laughs> Darn it. <laughs> if only. <laughs> I would be huge. I would be ripped. Um, <laughs> so if we have fear holding us back, we have to exercise the muscles of going into the uncomfortable places and practicing. 
getting out there and practicing, knowing we're going to fall on our face and make a mess and do things really brilliantly and also other things really badly, and just go for it and start exercising that muscle, and then we'll find that we're moving through the stuck places. But if we try and just think about it, we will stay stuck. Getting into action moves us through fear, moves us through apathy, moves us through overwhelm. And then doing the internal work to make sure that we keep our love and our care present, our purpose and our passion present versus our grief, our rage, and our anger. Because I'm, you know, it's the same thing when hearing all these things that are wrong. It's just like, oh my God, really? And then the other thing is make sure and don't read too much media. We are a sponge. The more we fill up with everything that's wrong, the less room we have for what's right. The inspiration begins to disappear when we fill up with everything that's wrong. <clears throat> it doesn't mean stick our head in the sands and pretend like everything's perfect because it's not. We, like you said, we have such a privilege and a blessing to be in this room tonight. It would be really beautiful if we took this blessing as an opportunity to share as much as we possibly can this blessing with others and to make a real contribution in the world. Um, and so it is, it is important to be aware, but not to inundate ourselves with everything that's wrong and um, only take in enough and then get to work doing what's right and then take in a little and get to work doing what's right. <laughs> yes. And with that, we are complete. I think it would be beautiful to take just one more moment of quiet to just allow to steep in if something resonated for you tonight. Allow that to steep in from your head into your heart. Breathing it in, breathing it all the way into your center. each breath in, breathing in your love, your care, your commitment for a healthy and beautiful and just world and planet. And with each breath out, having your breath be a commitment to living in integrity to that vision and in service to that vision. The world does need us now more than ever, and it needs us to be healthy and bring our best self, our most loving, compassionate, courageous, committed, integrous self, bringing healing to the hurting. Bringing love and joy to the despair.
Every breath we take is a miracle. May our lives live in honor of that miracle. Thank you and have a blessed evening and a blessed life. Oh, and one more thing. (laughs) May our time this evening together go towards the benefit of all beings. (laughs) Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.